Welcome to Unlocking Science, a series exploring how to talk about science and trust. Often triggered by competing narratives, be they religious, cultural, or political, trust is a fragile, multidimensional thing. Today, we look at how it is undone and the consequences for science when it is. This four-part series is brought to you by the International Science Council. I'm your host, Nick Ishmael Perkins, a journalist and researcher in the field of communication. In this episode, we explore different ways that distrust can be expressed and what drives that historically, institutionally, even structurally. We will also look at how competing narratives can mean making sense of the science is an often difficult, complicated task. Welcome to Unlocking Science. Joining us today are two guests whose expertise spans the fascinating areas of science communication, new media technology, mass communication, and the problematic issue of fake news. Our first guest is Cami Navarro, a molecular biologist by training. Cami left the sterile walls of the laboratory to pursue a Master of Science Communication from the Australian National University. She is now science editor at Wild Type Media, which publishes Asian Scientist magazine. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome, Cami. Thanks for having me, Nick. And Professor Tawana Kupe. He is the first Black Vice-Chancellor of the University of Pretoria in South Africa. Prior to this appointment, he held several senior positions at the University of Witwatersrand, where he also founded the Media Studies Department. He also lectured at Rhodes University. Welcome, Tuana. Good morning, Nick, and uh, good morning, Camila. Uh, I want to turn to Cami to talk about the case study of the super typhoon Haiyan. Do you want to tell us a little bit, Cami, about that story and what it says about distrust? Yep, absolutely. So the Philippines is one of the most disaster-prone countries in the world. And in 2013, it was hit by the super typhoon Haiyan. So even though the government and the mainstream media did not lack in efforts to communicate information about the incoming typhoon, over 6,000 people still died and there was nearly 100 billion pesos or 2 billion US dollars in damages. So the question now is, why did that happen? So the lack of evacuation was blamed on several factors, and one of them was that the government and media didn't translate this phenomenon called storm surge correctly. And because the public did not know what that meant, they were unable to act accordingly. So this kind of framing assumes that the people lack scientific knowledge and that just by giving simplified scientific information that should instinctively and intuitively motivate people to act. But that was definitely not the case with certain communities in the path of the super typhoon. So they didn't distrust the science, but they just simply weighed the warnings against their own lived experiences and deemed it as not useful when deciding to evacuate or not. So it's a different dimension of distrust. Fascinating, because what you see here is a different form of legitimacy, as it were, which is based on lived experience. Immediately, it makes me think, OK, how do you manage that? How do science communicators engage with that? So in this case, the communities in the past, certain communities in the path of, ty of the typhoon, they wanted the current experience of the typhoon to exactly match their lived experiences. However, we know that science is uncertain, right? That's one of the uh, basic aspects, one of the basic philosophies that underlie science. It's uncertain. So I think that we should have more of that 
communication about uncertainty, about what it entails. And that should help these kinds of people perhaps be more receptive to new information when there's a risk uh, scenario. It strikes me that there is an issue about reconciling the science with the lived experience. And perhaps this is where engaging with local community leaders could be helpful. What are your thoughts on that? In the case study for uh, Super Typhoon Haiyan, this meteorologist, he was socialized in science because, you know, he had scientific training. He said that, okay, I disseminated the information. I did my job. The public, they didn't understand. So because he was socialized in that uh, culture of science, he's immediately subscribed to that uh, deficit model and that, okay, just because I say something, it would lead into action. And I think that's something that could foster uh, distrust. And it's, it's certainly not the foundations of trust, if you will, because you have someone who is othering the people who you are meant to engage with. So I think that if we were able to make science more relevant to the lived experience, to the lived uh, indigenous knowledge of these communities, then that should help make science more relevant. And at the same time, choose representatives who are more receptive to engagement and who won't other these communities. I have to say, I think this is a point that's well made. It's hard to argue with that when you framed it like this. Um, but of course, the thing is, this is a challenging process because what you're describing requires some kind of institutional repositioning, transformation even. And Tuana, you of course have a lot of experience about institutional transformation. So let's hear you're the first Black VC, University of Pretoria. University of Pretoria was quite a central institution in the reproduction of the apartheid system in South Africa. What's that like for you? What are the kind of issues that you're finding with transforming this research institution? Many people will insist that I'm the first black. They mean African in that regard. So very interesting racial nuances in South Africa. I think what has been interesting here is that uh, the university has made remarkable progress in aligning itself with democratic ideals. This is a university with a five master's human rights programs that are pan-African. So there has been remarkable transformation, if you like, uh, uh, towards more diversity and inclusion. And also it's strong scientifically, it's the largest producer of research, and there's new interest in research facilities. But of course, often I have to explain this to a lot of people. Most people thought until I arrived here that it was still the university of the past. So it mirrors the, the uneven transformation in South Africa but also is now considered one of the treasures of South Africa and the African continent. Remember that uh, colonialism and apartheid uh, positioned Africans as people who were not civilized, who were less than human, if you like, did not have an ancestry of scientific progress and discovery. But also given that South Africa is, is an unequal society. And remember that the levels of education, literacy, and scientific understanding have a correlation. The less education and literacy you have, the less access to science and scientific arguments, and the less understanding of contestations and knowing who is actually right or wrong. So the possibility for confusion in that case is very, very high. We see it today with the vaccination hesitation as well. So I, I think this is really interesting. It reflects the uneven transformation in South Africa. And those of us who visited the country will understand what you're saying, which is to say that not all spheres of society have transformed to post-apartheid at the same rate. Um, but also, 
it to me raises some interesting questions about how people reposition the university in their perceptions of South Africa. And so there were some people who thought it was still very much a bastion of the old regime, but others who were aware were very happy to trust and to send their kids there. Yeah, so I think that it's about, again, access to information. Those who actually did their research about where they want to go and study and so on, found out that the kind of transformation that they would like to see and also the kind of quality education they would like to get was being provided by this institution in the post-democratic world and post-apartheid, if you like. So I think access to information and how it is provided and who has access to information and how it's translated into the public domain. Many people know about the University of Pretoria now because I'm very active on social media and in the media proper, partly because I'm a professor of media studies. So one of the expressions about this university before I came was that it was the best kept secret in Pretoria. <laughs> so I said to them, how do you have a best kept secret in a democratic world? So now we're winning major awards on university communications. In fact, this week I'm launching an, a, a research magazine called Research, which is electronic, which simplifies scientific stories and research stories for the ordinary person. It's something we did also when I was at Bits University and launched a magazine called Curiosity. That is where you bridge the hard discourse of the sciences into the common language that can be understood by everybody else. That's really interesting. And congratulations on the awards and on the launch. Kami, I, I want to ask you about the issue of translation, which Tawana has just raised. And so you talked about the storm surge and there was a challenge there. Can you say what the problem was with translating that term quite specifically? After the typhoon passed, uh, the government, they did make efforts to translate storm surge into Daluyong Baguio in, in Filipino. However, we have to remember that these people did not experience a storm surge before. They needed a lived experience to react to a situation accordingly. So even if back then there was a storm surge translation already, they wouldn't have been able to react the same way or evacuate because they still didn't know what this meant. So this just goes to show you that, you know, science, uh, it doesn't have the monopoly on rational thought. It's just another form of knowledge. There's the indigenous knowledge that we also have to consider. Tuana, I know that you have made a really interesting observation about the history of science and our knowledge of the world that we live in and the irony of this kind of conversation. Do you want to explain? It's really interesting that in the 21st century, we know much more. And this has been revealed during the, uh, the COVID pandemic, where genome sequencing and the production of vaccines was so quick, um, I think more than double quick. But there's still this high level of hesitation across the globe. One would have thought that more knowledge means more understanding and that uh, doubts of the past, distrust of the past should be gone. It seems it's much more complicated. Tawana said that here in the 21st century, we have so much information, but then I think that in communities such as the ones studied in the typhoon, when the benefits of this information in science and advancements in R&D, when it's not as immediately apparent, then it's not just a distrust of science that happens. You also have people who just don't make science a priority because for them survival is a priority they have other 
practical matters living day to day that they had to keep in mind. And for these communities, especially back then, that translated into them not attending these disaster evacuation trainings or uh, uh, other important life-saving scenarios. I think that's a really good point because in fact, distress doesn't have to mean active hostility. It can just be actually a lack of appreciation, a lack of engagement. This depends on who has access to information. And, and that if somebody else is distrusting somebody, to people who do not have access to information themselves, then he is their source of information. Yeah, no, I hear that. Thank you. Um, and Tuana, I want to come to a statement that you've made in the past when we've been talking, which is that <clears throat> news has no surname. Do you want to explain where that comes from? Yeah, so in recent times, something called fake news is a reason. But you see that uh, we have to be very careful about the terms we use. If it's fake, it's not news. News probably is fixed. It's just something that is tested, something that is scientific, if you like, something that's backed up by evidence. Now, putting it fake news, of course, muddies the waters and creates a name for something that does not have a center. Fake news is nothing but lies, disinformation, misinformation, propaganda, and all of that kind of stuff. We should call it by its name. Because those who want to undermine science, knowledge, and a rational society, we label science fake news and, and, and fake information. And, and for people who don't know with low levels of literacy, lack of access to the scientific journals and books and so on, this can become really very conf confusing if not frustrating, and also could feed into the skepticism we have seen across the world against science knowledge and also rationality. What you recognize is that this idea that news has no surname is that news needs to be socialized um, and that in that process, it is subject to co-option. Uh, because what you can do is you can say, oh, I know somebody who knows this. And that then starts to count. That's what starts to resonate with people. Now we get to that part of the podcast that we call Just Answer the Question. And it gives our guests 60 seconds to sum up any key takeaways. So I'm going to start with Cami, actually. So just answer the question. How do we talk about science and distrust? So I think that instead of imposing scientific knowledge, imposing scientific solutions onto these communities, uh, we should examine and acknowledge scientific phenomena from their point of view, from their own lived experience, and then work from there to build trust. And in that way, you make science relevant and contextual. And at the same time, we should make efforts to communicate the philosophy behind science, which in this case, especially when it comes to natural disasters, uncertainty. And this takes time to build up. And by building these kinds of things over time, Hopefully, that should be a recipe for a better evacuation in uh, future scenarios. Thanks, Cami. And now you, Tuana. How do we talk about science and distrust? Science needs to communicate its facts very clearly, but at the same time, be able to reveal its assumptions and how they relate to people's forms of knowledge. It needs also to reveal its uncertainties and the boundaries of its, of its, its, its certainty, if you like. So that people do not see it as another religion uh, contesting their own religions or their own systems of belief. So translation becomes very, very important here. And translation means that science needs also to be able to convince others who can convince others, their opinion leaders, if you like. But at the end of the day, science or science literacy, information literacy needs to be much more common in any society. 
thank you both for a particularly meaningful discussion about these very complex issues. Thanks, Kemi. Thanks, Professor Coupe. If you enjoyed this conversation, please look out for our next episode, How to Talk About Science and Knowledge, where we will look at how science perceives value in other spheres of knowledge and how we move from the sharing of information to knowledge for decision making. To listen to previous episodes and to learn more about the Unlocking Science Hub, please visit unlockingscienceseries.com. If you're in the UK, you can visit the International Science Council website to find out more about the project. This podcast was produced for the International Science Council by BBC StoryWorks Commercial Productions.